But if 99% of the conversation is about the harms that foreign-made deepfakes might cause, I think we're, we're missing out on opportunities to talk about how you could use them offensively, so to speak, and to simply react to that negatively because of the connotation deepfakes carry, to simply react viscerally and say that's unethical or immoral or illegal or creepy or, or whatever you want to call it, ignores the potential military uses. Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. To our NSL Unscripted listeners out there in whatever time zone and location you're at, I hope you're looking forward to this particular episode as I welcome on to our podcast uh, my OBC and grad course classmate, Major John Tramazzo. So I'm Major Michael Chioni Medici, heading out from the National Security Law Department onto my next assignment, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to snag John at the Naval War College for some of the scholarship that he's been working on. So if some of my abbreviations didn't make sense to you just there, I was talking about uh, the Judge Advocate Officer Basic course, and then also uh, the Graduate course. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Keone. Tell me exactly, where are you at right now? So I am in uh, my 10th and final month of Navy ILE. I'm in what they call the junior course here at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. So completing intermediate level education in the College of Naval Command and Staff. And where were you before Naval War College? So immediately before coming to ILE here at Newport, um, I was the regiment JAG for the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, or SOAR, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And then before that, I was with you there in Charlottesville for the grad course. And what a fantastic time that was. We were the class that kicked off COVID, and so we got to learn a lot about these remote capabilities. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, there's a blessing and a curse to being adept with Zoom and Teams. Fortunately for us, we had, I think, what, eight months of normal ops until we had to transition to the basements there, and feels like we're out of it. Happy to join you here on Teams today. You've also written, John, and I, I really appreciate you know some of this background of why you know today's conversation should be so rich and informed. Uh, but most recently, you published on uh, the Wagner Group's uh, No Quarter Order in Ukraine. And tell me a little bit about some of the other uh, scholarship you've been working on uh, while at the Naval War College. The article's a war blog on the Wagner Group's No Quarter Order uh, was a piece that I co-wrote with Professor Michael Schmidt, who's a professor emeritus at the Stockton Center. Professor Schmidt, who's written probably hundreds of pieces at this point, kindly invited me to join him in some of that research. And for me, uh, it, it occurred at a time where I'm transitioning out of the student detachment at the Naval War College and into the Stockton Center for International Law, which is associated with the Naval War College. And the Stockton Center's got an incredible history of, of producing scholarship on international law, specifically the law of naval warfare and the law of the sea but there's, uh, there's always one, sometimes two Army judge advocates in the Stockton Center, and we focus on 
the law of land warfare. So this was my first piece. And with Professor Schmidt looking at an aspect of customary international law, specifically how additional protocol one covers no quarter orders, basically, uh, in this case, the Wagner Group's order to take no prisoners, to kill everyone on the battlefield. Um, Professor Schmidt and I analyzed customary international law, treaty law, and some international criminal law applicable to no quarter orders, and some history as well. Interesting cases after World War II of military commissions trying German officers, for example, who ordered the summary execution of captured saboteurs. And we put that piece out there to basically conclude that the Wagner group committed a war crime in ordering no quarter. How about some of the other stuff that you've looked at uh, while you've been there? Yeah, so you know, this year, and I think ILE for anybody, it's a, it's a broadening opportunity. Um, so I, I started the year by writing about personal humility in making military reassessments, trying to look at aspects of leadership outside of the law. That was for a portion of the course they call Strategy and War, fall of 2022. Uh, transitioned into the winter trimester and, and wrote a paper on special operations forces in the gray zone, specifically in the Indo-PACOM uh, area of operations. And that's a piece that I expect to publish here in the next month or so. And then finally, writing uh, an article about deep fakes, which I know we'll talk about more here shortly, but machine manipulated media and specifically generative AI in a military context. I'm part of what's called the Ethics and Emerging Military Technology Program at the Navy War College. It's a graduate certificate program. And this piece on deep fakes, which I call the degradation of authenticity, is you know 40 page paper about deep fakes, what they are, how they're regulated, how they're not regulated, and how the military may use them both below the threshold of armed conflict and in future conflict. In March of 2023, The Intercept and a few other news organizations ran a story about how US SOCOM is soliciting bids, commercial bids for deep fake technology, not just for the purpose of detecting foreign-made deepfakes, but for the purpose of offensive use in MISO and MILDEC. That's that's what's got me going right now. And yeah, I'm looking forward to talking more about deepfakes. Deepfakes is something I've read about and have listened to from either professors internal to our department. But for our listeners out there, I mean, what are you talking about with this, this terminology, deepfakes? So a, a deepfake is... Uh, synthetic digital forgery. Most of them are videos, but they can be audio files and they can also be still images. And I, I would say most people, just generally speaking, understand a deepfake to be like a face swap. Typically, they are made with an intent to deceive an audience, although there's plenty of uh, examples of deepfakes that were made with the intent to educate or to, to entertain. For example, there, you know, there's a TikTok account of a deep Tom Cruise, and these two computer scientists uh, face swap Tom Cruise and his image and likeness and his voice into videos that they recorded of themselves doing all sorts of things, playing golf, drinking beer, tripping while walking into a room, 
and they say their intent is to quote mesmerize audiences. Um, MIT has an AI lab, and last year they produced a deep fake video of President Richard Nixon purporting to give a speech in 1969, which never occurred, talking about the failure of the Apollo 11 mission and how astro- how the astronauts all died. The MIT deep fake was clearly made with intent to educate the public about the rise of disinformation and essentially how you can't trust what what you see uh, in the age of generative AI. Uh, there's been deep fakes made at Northwestern University. They have an AI lab and they created one of a deceased terrorist named Muhammad al-Adnani uh, giving an interview that he never gave. There's been research done that shows most 95 plus percent of deepfakes are in the pornographic realm, you know, which raises questions about their exploitative nature because the vast majority of deepfakes are made without the consent of the subject shown. That said, some actually are made with the consent of the subject. There's some uh, recent research that shows celebrities are starting to look into consenting to the use of deepfake audio and video for after they pass away. Uh, Tom Hanks gave an interview recently talking about how he's looking to protect his image and likeness posthumously so that he can essentially continue to act after he he dies through the creation of generative videos and, and audios. So deepfake is defined sort of in U.S. law, the 2020 NDAA. Uh, established like a deep fake detection uh, award and the uh, director of national intelligence has a competition for small businesses to launch detection deep fake detection programs um, and while the law doesn't call deep fakes deep fake it, it defines machine manipulated media and I'll read that definition so uh, section 5724 of the 2020 NDAA defined, quote, machine manipulated media as a video, image, or audio recording generated or substantially modified using machine learning techniques in order to falsely depict events, to falsely depict the speech or conduct of an individual, or to depict individuals who do not exist. There is a category of of manipulated media known colloquially as cheap fakes. And, you know, there is uh, available technology to create uh, essentially bad deep fakes, but the more powerful the, the, the neural networks and the deep learning techniques used, the more credible and hyper-realistic the video or audio seems to the viewer or listener. But that technology is proliferating and you're starting to see amateur made cheap fakes really trick people. And uh, I'll give you one quick example of that. I think it was about four months ago at this point that a deep fake of Joe Rogan emerged online and it purported to show him having a conversation with one of his podcast guests endorsing a product that he never endorsed. So I think the implication is clear that this technology's it's dangerous, but it's it's disruptive to all facets of life, whether it's democracy and deep fakes of politicians saying things they never said or 
you know, the entertainment industry. There are deep fakes of Jay-Z and Chris Stapleton singing songs they never actually performed. And, and Joe Rogan talking about a product that he never endorsed. So they're dangerous. For me, the, the research question is, you know, despite the capacity for social harm, is there a valid basis for the military to to use this technology? And that's what I'm writing about now. Talk to us a little bit more about uh, your specific research into the military applications of this particular technology. In my research, I've tried to categorize deep fakes into five bins or buckets, um, and I've given those acronyms. So I'll go through those quickly. And, and there may be more. I'm not sure if this is an exhaustive list, but this was my best swag at, at trying to categorize deep fakes. The first category uh, of deep fakes are of living people who did not consent to the creation of the deep fake. So uh, I'm calling those LPNC, living person, no consent. And those deep fakes include things like the recent video of President Zelensky of Ukraine. It was February of 2022 when Russia invaded that that deep fake emerged online and it purported to show him giving a speech telling Ukrainian fighters to surrender. In the military context, you could see that a deep fake like that could have tactical effects, operational effects, strategic effects, could be a battlefield commander telling his or her troops to go left when in fact it would be more advantageous for them to go right. Looking at living person, no consent deep fakes in the military context, you could see their use, but you can also see that they might be the, the most morally suspect because you're exploiting someone's image and likeness. And I would say most deep fakes are in this category and some of them are extremely exploitative. Um, so it raises you know, moral and ethical questions beyond the legal questions, which are the most important for our community and, and we'll get to here at the end. Um, the next category are of living people who do give their consent. I would call these the least exploitative and the, the least morally suspect. In the military context, you could possibly see a military commander creating deep fakes, putting himself or herself in various places to confuse the enemy. And it wouldn't be hard to do that. The technology is already there. The third category are of deceased people who nev never gave consent, call those DPNC. There's a lot of examples of those. I talked about the deep fake of Al-Adnani, the deceased terrorist. Um, in the military context, I think it could be interesting to potentially take a video of a deceased terrorist. Take Osama bin Laden, for example. Most of the sensitive site exploitation that occurred after he was killed in May of 2011 has been released at this point. Uh, imagine if there were a video of him saying something that was disloyal to Al-Qaeda, for example. You could see how that could have operational or strategic level effects. Uh, the fourth category is what I call deceased person consent. I talked about Tom Hanks, for example, planning for the use of his image and likeness after he dies to potentially continue generating revenue for his estate. Um, you can imagine in the context of, of war, uh, uh, an influential leader or commander giving his consent. President Zelensky, for example, has been so influential in Ukraine. If he were killed 
and somehow Ukraine were able to keep that uh, secret and deep fakes were out there showing him still leading, uh, that could have great effect. And then the final fifth category, maybe the most dangerous, I call those fake people uh, deep fakes. And there, there's been a number of stories recently about how the Chinese and the Russians have created Western-looking news anchors to talk badly about the United States policies or to uh, you know, praise PRC or Russian policies. And these things are starting to pop up all over the internet. I think in the military context, you could see how we could use deep fakes of fake people to, um, you know, to flood the information zone with information that could either protect maneuvering forces or just confuse adversaries. So that's uh, that's what my research has has led me to conclude is that there's these big bins of deep fakes, and each one of them has potential military use, but they all call into question some moral and ethical concerns. I, I do want to note that in in the field, if you know, as a practitioner, the moral and ethical concerns matter, and we're called to give principled counsel. But the most important aspects of giving advice on deepfakes in the field is how the law applies. So, you know, I want to take your questions about the morality and ethics of deepfakes, and then we'll wrap up with the law. I really enjoy the way that you have cabined each one of these areas to look at them distinctly, because that is such a useful tool to make sure that we apply appropriate legal authorities, as well as I'm sure some of uh, this additional conversation over the uh, ethical aspects of it. Has anybody written on some of these areas that uh, in the legal context uh, that you're familiar with? Uh, Yes. So there's I think three really in, uh, good pieces that should be influential on deepfakes uh, and the legal aspects of employing deepfakes in the military context. One's actually a graduate course paper written by Major Nick Allen, who was my law school mate um, many years ago at this point. And that that thing is in the Defense Technical Information Center. And he does a really thorough job of analyzing how the law of armed conflict would apply to deepfake technology. There are also two really thorough blog posts in the Articles of War blog on the West Point Lieber Institute web website. Uh, the first one of those is called Deepfakes in the Law of Armed Conflict, and it was written in August of 2020 by Eric Jensen and Summer Crockett. And they do a really nice job of going through the application of additional protocol one to deepfakes and specifically the line between a lawful ruse and perfidious behavior. And I'd I'd commend that to people uh, interested in this topic. And then the Articles of War blog had a subsequent post by Professor Hitoshi Nasu in uh, March of 2022 called Deepfake Technology in the Age of Information Warfare. And his piece is a little more broad than the, uh, the first one I mentioned. And he gives some really specific examples of how deepfakes could be used for effect, but how also they could violate customary international law. He includes a number of sites to the DOD Law of War manual and takes uh, great care to talk about, you know, reducing impact to civilians. There's uh, an obligation to uh, not to terrorize civilians, for example, and to take uh, feasible precautions in 
mitigating harm. Um, in the deep fit context, you couldn't lawfully lead a civilian population to a location where you subsequently conducted attacks, for example. Um, and those two posts talk about ruses and perfidy and do it in a way that I think is understandable to practitioners. Computer science was my worst grade as an undergrad. <laughs> That's part of the reason why I've tried to really focus on understanding deep learning and neural networks. And I, I don't understand the math behind uh, deep fakes, but I, I understand conceptually how you pit these neural networks against each other to essentially deceive a computer into predicting the movement of of somebody's face you know you can it's not just superimposing someone's face onto another image it's it's changing the dna of of the video or audio or image so that the computer actually replaces one with the other it's a it's a straight swap i think understanding the unprecedented nature of generative ai and its application to videos and audio is important so that you can engage in a meaningful way with the people who are developing this for potential military use. So one that's important is actually go try to seek out how this functions. Uh, and then to be open-minded, because maybe in the end we resolve to only invest in deep fake detection technology. And maybe in doing so, you know, we, we lead the world towards the, the most moral ethical conclusion. But at the same time, don't ignore that there's potential deep fake technology for use at the tactical level that will help us meet mission objectives and keep Americans safe. Uh, it's important to have those conversations too and, and pursue that to its logical conclusion because uh, the tech's not going away and it's, it's only getting better. So we can't uh, ignore its potential for, for use on the battlefield. John, it has been awesome to have this conversation with you. I'm so excited uh, to push this to our listeners. I wish you the best in your transition to your, what, a fellow program, right? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be a military professor teaching a LOAC elective at the Navy War College and hopefully uh, be, be publishing some stuff in the next year. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.